Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Marisa Fuentes, the author of Dispossessed Lives, Enslaved Women, Violence, and the Archive, published this year by University of Pennsylvania Press. The book takes on big issues, including gender, violence, and the production of the archive in slave societies, thinking carefully about the methodology and ethics of writing about slavery. And interestingly, it does so by using bits of evidence about five enslaved women, focusing each chapter on one of the women. It's a really fascinating read, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Marisa. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So Dispossessed Lives is this wonderful book about uh, enslaved women, violence, the archive. And I see it as not just another book about enslaved women, and though there aren't very many, there are some out there. But I saw it as a specific methodological and, as you argued, ethical intervention in the literature. And I thought maybe we could start there before we get into the details of of each chapter. Um, with the way you're thinking about the archive and how you're reading it differently? So I would always start with my encounter with the archive. Um, And when I went to do this research, I was searching for kind of fully formed um, enslaved female subjects that I could just kind of narrate um, and instead found an archive in which they were brutalized and fragmented um, and, and largely silenced so there was really, um, really, really uh, a little amount that I could actually work with. Um, and again, the archive, as I'm thinking about it, is really the traditional archive, which is created by the British colonial world, those officials that were in power, planters, merchants, slave traders, um, colonial officials. So everything was coming from their perspective, um, And so I kind of started there and really thought, how am I going to write an entire book on subjects in which they don't really appear um, fully formed? And when they do, they're so fragmented that there's very little one can say. Um, So I decided to think about it as a methodological project and start to challenge the way that traditional historical methodology forces one to kind of have this very strong empirical base because my subjects, by virtue of who they were um, and their life experiences, were never, ever going to be um, adequate for what traditional historical methodology called for. So it was kind of um, a pushback, if you will, on the requirements of the discipline and what was actually possible. Um, And so I tried to think about how to demonstrate what you can actually do with a fragmented archive if you're not um, confined by traditional rules that don't actually fit on particular subjects. And I guess I would say by ethical, um, I mean something I've actually been thinking about. I'm not sure that we all know what ethical means or that I can even say, um, you know, that it's a universal term, but but I do think that I was very cognizant of not reproducing the fragmentation 
um, of of how they came into the archive and also reproducing the violence um, verbatim that they were kind of appearing within. So it was that project of being very careful with language um, to not kind of reproduce the conditions of their enslavement. Yeah, I found that very compelling. I found the methodological uh, aspects of it also very compelling. And I want to get back to the ethical bit of it maybe later on. But for now, I just want to, I want to actually get into some of the details. And I'm curious, why Barbados? How did you come to choose Barbados? Um, that's a great question, actually. It was, it was not necessarily by accident, but I had begun in undergrad with a project on South Carolina uh, when I was a senior, and I was interested in the Sea Islands area of mm. South Carolina. When I did that project, I was in the 19th century, um, and when I started reading kind of back into the history, I realized the connection between South Carolina and Barbados, where Barbadian planters colonized the Charleston area and what became um, North and South Carolina. So I was intrigued and I began to apply to graduate programs that would allow me to do diasporic work so that the U.S. was not the center of the project, but rather a kind of comparative diasporic frame. Mm -hmm. And um, when I went, I was very lucky. Um, Berkeley had a summer program for undergraduates every year where we took you know, 40 or 50 undergrads to Barbados for five weeks. And I was fortunate enough to be the TA for about four years on that mm-hmm. program. And honestly, um, I fell in love with the place. Um, I ended up committing to do my dissertation research on Charleston and Bridgetown as a comparative, comparative genders and slavery. Um, but by the time I was writing the book, I realized that the material that I did have, though fragmented and problematic, was much richer than what I had found in Charleston. Um, so I kind of put Charleston aside and started to focus on Barbados history. And also, I think, as an island, as a colony, it is kind of marginalized in the scheme of British Caribbean history in the sense that Jamaica is kind of, you know, the the most significant site that is written about over and over again. So I kind of wanted to say, well, what happens on a smaller island with a different geography, with a majority female population? So there was all these like really unique, compelling reasons why I chose to focus on Barbados. Yeah. And so maybe you can explain why there was a majority female population, because that's really unusual. It is really unusual, and I certainly don't think I answer it in the book um, very well, but but there's a couple of of reasons, um, and of course Jennifer Morgan touches on this in her work. What I think, as a kind of educated guess, um, is that because of where Barbados is geographically in the Caribbean, it's the easternmost Caribbean island, they actually received the first... um, slave ships um, on the route. And so they got, quote-unquote, first choice um, off the ships. And although in the initial settlement of any of these colonies, planters preferred men, quickly uh, Barbadian planters decided that women were just as good in terms of work, especially once they had cleared the island of woodlands um, using male labor, Um, And it just was never a problem. Um, They never thought that women were weaker than men in terms of 
the work, um, the agricultural work. Um, so the, the numbers were actually quite even um, pretty early on. And I think it was partly by, by planter preference. The other thing is that, that the majority female or white female population is quite unusual in this early period. And, and I guess I would say that, and again, I'm, I'm doing a kind of educated guess because I'm not sure that anyone has actually really given a concrete reason for this. But I can say that as Barbados was one of the first settled agricultural slave economies in the Caribbean, in the British Caribbean, um, that because it was settled so early, women could come and settle with families easier than, say, Jamaica, which was a frontier colony for much longer. Um, and then, of course, you have an influx of indentured servants who were also largely female, uh, male and female, but, but certainly a significant amount of women who ended up, after their contracts ended, kind of marrying into some of the planter families. So it just kind of balanced um, the gender ratios. And of course, as we know, a lot of the men would die early um, and the women would survive them, the widows would survive them. So you had this very unique population. So what's really fascinating then is that there's this kind of unique setting, but it also, as you show in the book, shares a lot of the um, aspects of other slave societies, and one of them that, that really kind of stands out as one of the sort of thematic points of the book is violence, right? And maybe it's obvious that any book on slavery should think about violence, but I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about how you chose it to be one of the themes around which the book pivots. Right. Let me think. Um well, I think in an in a very obvious way for me, when I confronted the archive, it's it's all that I found pretty much, um, and and I guess I, all that I found based on the records I was looking at. So, Jennifer Morgan's fabulous work. Um, I, I had her as a guide to the archive, so I sort of looked at what she looked at, and then tried to find things that she didn't look at, and those things happened to be. Um, court, not court records, but execution records, mm. um, which was a kind of in, an unusual way to kind of get into a history of thinking about um, punishment and gender in, in a slave context, in a slave society. Um, one of the things that I think Barbados has a reputation of is because they didn't have large scale slave revolts like Jamaica. It's purported to be a milder version mm-hmm. of enslavement in the Caribbean. And I wanted to say, well, wait a second, what are we actually thinking of in terms of violence? Is violence only sort of like the physical? Um, and so I was looking at violence in all these different ways, archival violence, um, the ways in which women were described, physical violence, the ways in which people were punished, um, the violence that historians might reproduce in the ways that we interpret sources. Um, it just became something that I couldn't ignore. And certainly by the last chapter, which I think we'll talk about later, um, it was so repetitive and mm-hmm. so stark that I couldn't not have it be sort of a central um, part of the narrative. So you chose to write each chapter 
around an archival fragment about a woman. And the women are Jane, Joanna, and then in that chapter, Rachel's also very important, Agatha, Molly, and Venus. Mm -hmm. How did you decide to organize it this way? And how did you choose those particular women? I imagine you looked at many, many more documents. Right. Um, Well, I'll start with Rachel because I think she's the easiest to talk about, Rachel and Joanna. I was struck by the reproduction of of the narrative of Rachel Pringle throughout the island, and not just in in the historical monographs and articles, but actually in the popular culture of the island. She's in posters and dolls, and she's it's like a tourist kitschy thing. Um, and I wanted to understand what her story was. So when I started doing the research, I realized that the narrative that everyone was telling wasn't actually um, it was actually political rather than a, an accurate narrative. So I started kind of digging and digging and digging and had the exact archive that all of the other historians had and just reconfigured it to give us another way to look at her as someone who participated in slave society, as um, as a someone who is overrepresented in the history of slavery in Barbados, um, that even someone so hyper-visible could be re-sought and refigured based on um, her proximity to enslavement, other women. We were thinking of her in a, in a sort of entrepreneurial way, and yet she owned enslaved women very violently, and no one was talking about that. So the project, the whole project, really was committed to trying to get at silenced enslaved women, people that were not being focused on because their narratives were so scant or their archive was so scant. So she was one of the sort of entry points into thinking about um, one of her slave enslaved women that I was lucky to find in the last stages of um, Rachel was an article before she made it and they made it into the book um, that I found Joanna and Joanna's trouble with freedom, who was, um, one of her enslaved women, likely a prostitute, who then indentured herself back. So Rachel was just so kind of hyper-visible and hyper-represented that I, it was the, the way that I could undo all of that and kind of reconstruct it. It came to me as I was sitting through, sifting through, you know, hundreds of records, and they stuck out to me. And, and I have to, have to be honest in the sense that it was a feeling that I had. Um, you know, reading Jane's runaway advertisement in chapter one, I actually had never seen an advertisement like that in, in all of the ones that I had um, come across in terms of the descriptions on her body. There were scars um, described in other advertisements, but not where you could actually see tra- her moving across space. Um, it was so stark. It was so violent. Uh, and at the time, I think I say this in the epilogue, I actually didn't know what to say about the, the fragments that I found. I was so moved by them that I had to sit with them. Um, so Jane, kind of her unusual description, um, and then Molly, I think, really, really struck me because she was the only woman in the description of about, I think I looked at, there was about 500 men that were executed um, over the course of 100 years, enslaved men, and only 25 women that were recorded, right? And these are official executions, people that were 
condemned. So we don't know, not counting the people that were just killed indiscriminately um, and not recorded. But she struck me because um, the way that the policy kind of circulated around her um, thinking about enslaved mourning, thinking about the gendered circumstances of coming to um, coming to the, sh- the the gallows. It was so profound that the governor, you know, decided that the policy from now on would be to remove bodies into the sea. I think that that struck me. Again, I didn't know what to say at the time. I was a graduate student collecting them, but these were the ones that I felt were so compelling and could and and could offer us a way to think about not only the historical moment and circumstance, but what this means on other levels, both kind of historiographical um, thinking about gender and violence and sexuality and punishment, all of these things could be brought out of this particular fragment. And it kind of went on from there. I think, again, by the end, um, the archive of Venus, and, and Venus is a, is a, obviously it's not anyone's name, right? It's, it's sort of a play on Saidiya Hartman's Venus in Two Acts, where this name comes to stand in for the tragic, anonymity of these women who are coming into the archive without names. And um, those women in the last chapter came out of these debates where there were hundreds, hundreds of accounts of enslaved men and women being beaten um, and destroyed physically in, in a lot of ways. And those accounts that I decided to focus on were kind of the most descriptive um, of all of them. And, and, and disturbing in a very profound way. So I kind of wanted to figure out how to talk about something so violent and so disturbing in a very careful way so that we could at once sit with, sit with it and, and, and contemplate the violence, but also figure out if there was something and someone to recuperate within that um, particular narrative. So each fragment actually gave me a way to talk about layers of history, the theory, the method, the, the historical circumstance. Um, right. And that's what, I, I think that that's one of the things that the book does so well. It doesn't just tell the stories of these women, which are really uh, compelling in and of themselves, but it also does open up these kind of more methodological questions. So for example, um, with Jane, um, her body is so marked that it seems almost like an archive in itself. And, what you do and what you do throughout the book is to sort of try and approach the documents from the perspective of the enslaved woman. And you, you right. use that opening chapter to, um, to, to think about space and the town and how an enslaved woman might move through that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that that was really, really fascinating. Um, but maybe we could just talk about Rachel and Joanna for um, a little bit. Uh, and okay. your article about R- Rachel um, Primo Pellegrini is so is so um, widely read. I think by now all of my students read it anyway. Um, so, um, but you use that chapter to really push against ideas about sexuality and agency, and to argue mm-hmm. for the limits of agency. It seemed like that was one of the things that you were really trying to push against. And maybe you can take that apart a little bit for our listeners. Sure. 
so there's a there's a few things going on with this kind of this idea of agency and one is that the narrative that she was ensconced in was simply that this is someone who overcame slavery and was successful right she she was a property owner she owned a brothel she made money and the stakes at which what the historians were judging her on was her ability to participate in a capitalist economy, right? And that wasn't, for me, a really uh, strong argument about the concept of resistance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The way that we usually think about it as subverting a system of enslavement. So it was interesting to me that um, she was kind of held up as the first hotelier of Barbados, the tourist industry, um, without really looking at what, in fact, she w- what her business was. Mm-hmm. Um, so agency has a couple of, of issues for me in the, histori- in the historiography. One is that, obviously, um, it was being equated with a particular kind of success in this context. But also, I thought about why historians in general, and and at least since the late 1960s, of slavery have made it central to understanding the enslaved experience, period. And agency equated with resistance, that they were were synonymous. Um, When you think about it, it is actually kind of um, problematically attached to... um, what I'll say, liberal humanist ideas of free will and the conditions and the laws of slavery, I'm not sure actually allow for someone to have free will, an enslaved person to have free will in the sense that we're imagining it. So I wanted to kind of divorce those terms and think about agency as action, as, as people acted under the circumstances that they found themselves with. Um, and for a lot of the historiography, there was an investment in recuperating the humanity of the enslaved, which I actually, you know, applaud and, and, and respect that impetus because it comes out of a long historiography of um, enslaved people being presented as defeated, completely defeated and dominated by the, by the system of slavery. I understand historians wanting to kind of push back on that. But all of that is to say that the conditions of enslavement in the Caribbean, those terms don't map onto these experiences. It was far more complicated than saying someone resisted or someone was an agent. And I, and I thought of Rachel in particular um, because here's someone that was enslaved, that was likely sexually abused by her father um, and, and probably physically punished who made a very complicated decision. Maybe it wasn't complicated for her, but she lived within a society that that was the only viable way to actually guarantee your survival was to own other people, right? So I wanted to make choice and agency and resistance more complicated, and her story really facilitated that. I found accounts of her beating um, an enslaved woman basically to death, um, so she participated in the violence of slavery. And I think that kind of challenges our idea of heroic resistance in this context. Um, in terms of sexuality, 
it's really it's really complicated because there's all of these kind of competing politics going on I think for me the problem was that in terms of um, thinking about gender both kind of the masculinity of slavery and the kind of ways in which enslaved women are feminized in terms of the concept of resistance men were always talked about in terms of physical um, kind of confrontation and you could think about Frederick Douglass in that way um, kind of gathering their manhood through the ways in which they resisted, uh, whereas enslaved women tended to be given agency by historians through their, their bodies and through mm. sexual, sexuality, mm. which I think is really problematic. Um, they, were, they were sexualized, feminized in very particular ways, and that was the only way, especially in the Caribbean and especially in the urban context, that historians could find to talk about um, enslaved women and resistance. And I wanted to push back on that as well. That if we move too far to think about the negotiations enslaved women and freed women of color were involved in in the context of a slave society in the Caribbean, yes, there were sexual relations with white men and there were very complicated relations and relationships, but that is to say that they did not have the final say or complete power over those decisions. And you can see this narrative coming up again and again and again in um, Trevor Bernard's work about Jamaica and Thistlewood and Fibba um, and some of the work on urban slavery and other contexts in the Spanish context. And I wanted to say, you know, if we if we continue to kind of reproduce that narrative, it, it takes away the reality that at the end of the day, the white man, the relationship with the white man or white people decided somebody's quality of life, somebody's decisions over their children, um, their possibilities for freedom. But also it, it erases the reality of sexual violence that I think was more common than any kind of reciprocal relationship was possible in this context. So that whole chapter was doing, now I think too much, but a lot on trying to push back on all these ways in which we understand these concepts that kind of dominate the, the historiography. Mm-hmm. So, and then Agatha's story takes us to another aspect of this relationship between and among women, which is really an important part of the book and and another book, another aspect that's not often explored. And the story um, is almost comic, right? Because you have this adulterous white couple and they they send this young enslaved boy into the city dressed as a woman. And we're not really sure why or what happens to him or what the deal is. But you talk about that incident, um, and the ways that white domesticity depends on ideas about enslaved women. And so I wonder if you could sort of talk about how that works and what else you try and tease out of that incident. Okay. Um, So what was compelling to me about this story was really the enslaved boy um, being, being dressed as a woman and, and walking across town um, being accused of, of attempted murder of, of a white man um, being acquitted and so there was this kind of gender-bending um, circumstance that I thought was really fascinating. Um, and, and I think what was very stark for me was, was that Agatha left a deposition of her describing very coyly her sexual encounter with this 
um, with her lover. Mm-hmm. And to the degree that that is common in the history of early America, I'm actually not sure if those depositions existed to the degree that, um, you know, that hers is so kind of forthright. Um, but for me, it did a lot of work to think about um, white womanhood. Um, again, the term agency comes up. Gender and what was possible for white women that was never possible for enslaved women. And I was determined that one could say something about them even if they weren't written about specifically. So I was grappling with that for a long time. Um, And then I thought about all the ways in which the presence of black women, the, the majority presence of black women influenced every member of society and ways that I can think about, um, the privileges that Agatha had that we might even not, we might not recognize because of her compromised situation. She was a fallen woman, a married woman that was um, in an adulterous relationship in the 1740s, completely scandalous. I think she was banished from the island. So there's all these ways in which some of the scholarship kind of wants to put white women in slave societies, whether it's the Caribbean or the South of, of the United States, antebellum, in this, in this kind of victimized position within slave society. And some even go as far as to say, well, at least enslaved women could have sex with anybody, right? Um, whereas white women were confined in, in particular ways. I really wanted to push back on that and complicate it by thinking about even in a situation of ruin, Um, that the positionality of white women in a slave society was far more um, powerful than an enslaved woman could ever um, kind of be considered or or be hopeful about, Um, particularly with access to even the concept of domesticity, right, Um, and gender in a very specific way that's attached to domesticity, um, motherhood, femininity, wife, being a wife to somebody, being someone who reproduces culture, all of these things were very much attached to white women and not to enslaved women. Um, and, I, and I thought that this story really, really allowed me to have that kind of um, dichotomy and contrast. Um, and so I, I, I really pushed forward with it despite, <laughs> despite the pushback I got um, and hoped that I got the point across convincingly um, that agency still as a concept that's within um, the system of patriarchy, for example, what, what the agency that Agatha had access to was an agency where she was supposed to deny that she had any sexual power in the society or sexual desire. Right. Mm -hmm. And so she should kind of played into um, patriarchal notions of, kind of the, the white female victim um, by denying that she had agency, but her ability to do that meant that she actually did. So again, kind of moving from Rachel and, and complicating those concepts within the context of an enslaved woman or enslaved women's bodies and sexuality, I wanted to kind of further the concept and think about it in the context of white womanhood in comparison to um, enslaved women's position in the society. So I'm wondering in all of this, and it's all sort of so wonderfully complicated, 
and intriguing, but I'm curious as to what happens to the category of woman uh, in this book. What does it end up meaning? Are there, uh, do you imagine sort of lines of division within the category, all depending on each other, black, non-black, and slave-free, or is there not really a coherent category woman that we can argue or that you can argue for? I would say that I don't think that there's a coherent category of woman that one could argue for. And I, and I think this is true in the sense of white women as well, that there are these ideals um, that are circulating, right? And, and ideals and ideologies of womanhood that I don't think anybody actually embodied. Um, and I think whole, even holding up the kind of white womanhood in this kind of pure virtuous, secluded way is false um, in this context because slavery and and the concept of enslavement and the body um, created a situation or created an environment where everybody was kind of exposed to um, all types of of ways to transgress categories. Um, And they used enslaved people as that excuse in a way. Mm. Um, and I don't think that the white families were secluded from um, black families and, and, and black women and, and sexuality. And that, that it was a sort of a kind of um, much more intimate configurations of these definitions than I think we have really defined before. And I think in terms of enslaved women and womanhood, I just don't think... Um, and I use Hortense Spillers to talk about that, and she's kind of rather complicated um, to get through, but I really think there was no possibility for enslaved women in these circumstances, in these contexts of violence and and, um, vulnerability to sexual violence in particular ways, to actually have a definable category of woman that made sense in any way that was empowering in any way. Um, so yeah. yeah, in the last two chapters, sort of more specifically, you talk about violence um, and these two chapters really take us there in, in more explicit ways that are, I think you handled it beautifully, but they're really um, troubling. Um, and you, you posit this idea that enslaved women are denied gender as part of the violence that's inflicted on them. Is that, is that what you were getting at earlier, this notion of being denied gender? Huh. Well, denied a particular conception of gender. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that I have answered what enslaved female gender actually is. But I think that I was speaking to the ways in which it had been conceived historiographically um, as something that it was tangible. It, 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 it was um, akin to what we thought about a kind of universal um, definition of, of womanhood in a particular way. Again, access to the idea of domesticity, uh, marriage, respectability, motherhood, all of these things were kind of an impossibility for an enslaved woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that I have an answer for what gender is in the context. I know what it's not. And I think I was more <laughs> kind of defining what it wasn't yeah. than what it was. Yeah. 
Um, I was also really intrigued um, by the time you took to talk about the cries and the screams that were in the documents, and maybe that's because I'm interested in sound, and I was mm-hmm. I just that kind of caught my or my ear, um, and. But I was really interested in how you use those to tie into rethinking notions of resistance or the notions of resistance that you're arguing for, which are much more kind of nuanced and complicated than the ones that are often um, sort of used in in talking about slavery. So what about these cries and screams drew you in the documents? Um, First, the the repetitive instances of the descriptions of people screaming mm-hmm. um, in punishment in town. Um, a lot of the records that I looked at for that particular chapter came out of these debates on the ending of the slave trade. And most of the interviews with these sailors and um, ship captains and whatnot and, and military men were actually descriptions of towns because they didn't necessarily go into the country. Mm. So it was a very kind of urban um, circumstance of, of the scream and the way that it traveled and the way that it traveled into strangers' ears and what kind of drew them into a particular scene. And I really was struck by the description of the most dreadful cries that could come from a human being, mm. someone in that in the stages of death or, or very close to it or, or wanting to die, right? That, that kind of primal... Um, expression of utter pain. Um, So that kind of drew me into thinking about a language. What what language was this? If it was a language of pain, um, how can we think about it in a way that that is a language that we haven't actually thought about in terms of, I want to, I'm careful to say that I'm hoping that I have not actually reproduced the narrative of resistance. Mm -hmm. Because I think in, in the ways that I was thinking about um, this moment of, of punishment and the reaction, the bodily reaction as something that exceeds resistance, right? It's, it's sort of like an expression of humanity that neither resists nor succumbs, but just is. Mm-hmm. Um, and understanding that, and it kind of speaks for the, the whole book, what, what, what happens when we take apart our expectations of having some sort of triumphant, resistive, subversive narrative and just really understand how people are acting in a particular situation and how we can read action um, as another kind of, of language that gets us closer to kind of everyday life, right? Not everybody's resisting all the time or everybody's kind of uh, succumbing all the time. But, but what does it mean for someone to be in pain in this context? And so thinking about um, the scream as a moment when despite, I mean, and, and in spite of or what is happening to their bodies in, in a moment of punishment is a way to just kind of exclaim, I'm here and, and I'm in pain, and I'm likely dying, and you're going to hear me. And that's the only thing I can actually do, right? Because the, the person that's punishing them um, has to be present in hearing someone's humanity being degraded, right? So mm-hmm. it's a way of just asserting one's presence in a very, very tragic um, and violent situation, 
um, that is not resolvable, that we can't even actually write a coherent narrative about because it's never going to be a coherent narrative. And actually, history cannot be a coherent narrative if you really want to go and think about the production of history. So it's kind of getting to all of those thematics that I was dealing with for the rest of the book to think about. Um, when might we hear an enslaved voice? What might it sound like? Right. And this was a moment where I felt like, well, here it is, as mitigated as it is by the archive, as um, violated that it is by pain. What, what might we understand from this moment of an exertion um, or assertion of humanity? And I think that that brings us back to the ethical intervention that you uh, take up in the introduction, but also in the end, at the end of the book, um, and it, it seems like that that's as much um, as anything else the point of the book, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you think, and I find that part really compelling, um, but I wonder if you think that um, historians can do this even when not writing about slavery. So the way that you just talked about it now is really sort of um, convincing, but I wonder... Um, if if non historians of other things apart from slavery can take this away and think about their own methods and their own approaches, I think I would like to say yes in the sense that ultimately the methods of that I'm trying to introduce on 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 strategies to access those that are the most powerless in any given context or any society, I think are methods that people in any field, um, I would hope, could think through and utilize. Um, and and I'm, I'm also in women's and gender studies and history, and I think about what does it mean to, um, you know, kind of think about the most powerless in any given context, and what does it mean, and I tell my students this in class, to work to free those people actually frees the whole society, right? And kind of thinking about um, issues of poverty and race and um, discrimination kind of writ large. And I think the same in terms of historical subjects, like if we can make the most vulnerable visible, um, then it actually gives us perspective on the most powerful as well. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm, I think that that can be something that is applied more broadly. Absolutely, yeah. So we've taken up a lot of your time, and uh, as a final question, I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about any new projects you're working on. Absolutely, um, and it actually grows out of this methodological impetus that I was working with um, in the first book. I'm interested in invisible subjects and, and those that are the most impossible to access. So I'm turning to the slave trade and I want to write a history of um, people that made it across the Middle Passage into ports across the Atlantic world, so Charleston and New York and Bridgetown and Kingston, but who actually died once they got into port or, or couldn't be sold because they were sick. Mm. Um, and they were called refuse slaves, garbage so I'm interested in a history of the unsellable, the decommodified. Um, they're, they're, they're people that are between human and death. And I'm interested in kind of a liminal life 
no one's written about them because they actually don't offer you a long narrative. They're, they're fragmented everywhere, but they are talked about in, um, in terms of volume, but maybe frag volumes of fragments. So I'm thinking about the biopolitics of the slave trade, how they managed bodies, but how they managed death in, in very specific to kind of, um, the unsaleability of them. They weren't slaves because they couldn't be sold. So they weren't, following that particular trajectory and thinking about capitalism, um, not only the production of, of profit, but the production of waste um, in human form. So again, those that don't have any voice, they're never named. Um, people or historians have moved past them because they're saying that there's not enough empirical evidence, but I'm actually interested in, in challenging those um, arguments and writing a history of these people. That sounds like it's going to be amazing. Um, thanks so much for talking to me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much again for the um, opportunity.